This podcast is brought to you by the Wharton School at the University of Pennsylvania. Recently, activist investor firm Engine Number no. One claimed three seats on the board of directors of ExxonMobil. The firm has been pushing the oil giant to shift its focus away from fossil fuels. The process showed the shift going on around the oil industry and how the mindset of investors is changing. Engine number one in this process received support for their independent directors from a variety of large pension funds, which hold a significant stake in ExxonMobil. That's important because of the fact that engine number one currently only has a 0.02 stake in ExxonMobil. Very, very small and not a lot of influence doing something on their own. But you get the support of those pension funds, and then you're talking about a much different story. This opens up a uh, much larger question around uh, the issue of corporate diplomacy and what companies need to do to be able to work with outside stakeholders to make sure that they are meeting their needs, but also doing so by uh, working forward and continuing to grow a company. We're going to discuss the importance of that vote uh, moving engine number one's three seats onto the board of directors uh, right now with Veet Hennish, who's a management professor at the Wharton School. Veet, great to have you with us. Thanks very much for a few moments today. Oh, it's a pleasure to be here. Thanks uh, for the opportunity. That, I, I mentioned corporate diplomacy, and for those you know, just joining us, uh, that is also the title of a book you wrote uh, a few years ago. And certainly this ExxonMobil case is tying back into it. And I guess let's start with the definition that you have for corporate diplomacy and how exactly it does tie into this ExxonMobil case. Sure. I mean, corporate diplomacy is just the art and the skill of, of winning the hearts and minds of stakeholders to support an organizational mission. So it's about reaching out to community leaders, to NGOs, to government officials, making sure that they're on the company's side, that they see the business case uh, or the social case for uh, helping the company out. And the company needs to cultivate those relationships to deliver uh, its uh, value. And so in terms of this ExxonMobil case, uh, I'm guessing that ExxonMobil probably hasn't done a great job of corporate diplomacy because you see no. kind of this uh, this bite back by engine number one and the agreement uh, that uh, they should have three seats on the board by all of those big pension funds. Absolutely. No, I think ExxonMobil has been a poster child for failed corporate diplomacy. I mean, the, the focus of the campaign was around climate risk. Uh, unlike the other major oil and gas companies, ExxonMobil has made very little adaptation uh, to uh, to the to the reality of climate change, uh, and it's been suffering. Its stock price has been suffering as, as a result. And Engine Number One didn't run this as a green campaign. It, it ran it as a campaign saying that climate risk is financial risk. The lack of attention to uh, the reality of climate change has been destroying shareholder value. And they convincingly made that case and replaced a quarter of the board. Is is this concept of corporate diplomacy? historically a relatively new one and and how important do you think it is right now when you're thinking about all of these issues that are being brought up to corporate boards to companies in general and the action that stakeholders want to have whether it be actual investors or the public in general they want to see action by a lot of companies on these issues right now they do i mean i think the idea uh, you know the the label is new i I try 
understand something new uh, with it. But the idea that companies are embedded in society and that society affects the companies is longstanding. I think the, the thing that I really tried to emphasize uh, with the, the corporate diplomacy is that we can monetize that. We can turn it into business value. It's not just an idea, but it shows up on the profits and loss statement. It shows up on the risk register. And I think ExxonMobil really shows that. The lack of attention to climate risk uh, destroyed the return on invested capital. It destroyed shareholder value. You could link their strategy to the balance sheet. And Engine Number 1 did that very successfully. Talk, if you can, for a moment about the support that Engine Number 1 received from those different pension funds and the importance of that to be able to kind of move this process forward. I mentioned at the top the fact that Engine Number 1 only had 0.02% stake in ExxonMobil to begin with, very small. Then you get the support of the pension funds, and certainly there's uh, much more of a foothold taking uh, taking place. Yeah, I mean, look, it was a broad-based campaign. Um, they got, you know, they did get the support of, uh, of some of the big three for some of the seats, but not for all of them. Uh, they reached out to a wide range of investors, and they made the business case that climate risk is financial risk. Uh, and, and so I, I think we're starting to see a recognition uh, that some of the things we thought of as non-business, as non-traditional risks, actually do impact the balance sheet, and that expands the scope of who might vote with an activist, far beyond the votes they hold and far beyond uh, people who are engaged on climate change or environmental issues, it opens up the mainstream community to these appeals. And that's what you saw, again, with Engine Number 1. This wasn't driven by the Green or the environmental movement. They supported them. But the majority of the votes came from, uh, the, the, as you said, the pension funds, the asset managers, the big institutional investors, because they saw the business risk and what in the strategy ExxonMobil was taking. And, and so that plays in, into this next question I want to ask you, because certainly in, in the scope of where we are right now, where ExxonMobil and the other uh, big energy companies are involved, the people that are thinking about climate risk are considered probably the most important shareholders of those companies right now. And I think you've talked about it in the past is that companies really need to look at which are the most important shareholders of a particular company at any one time. Well, I think they, look, they need to pay attention to long-term value. And if they deliver on long-term value to their stakeholders, to their shareholders, to their employees, to the communities in which they do business, the company will survive. And if they fail to do that, the company will struggle and, and, and can be challenged and its management can be challenged. So who are the most important stakeholders? Um, you know, it, it's hard to say who are the most important shareholders, but if you want to try to achieve harmony among them and achieve a balance of gains. And, and ExxonMobil was tilting the balance towards the short-term shareholder interests at the expense of long-term and the expense of um, – you know, communities, expense of all of us who are affected by climate risk. So I, can, I think can, it's, it's – go ahead. Go, no, go ahead. Finish up. I'm sorry. Well, I, I just think that the, the um, you know, what we're trying to do is remove this barrier from saying some people are interested in climate and some people are interested in investment and find the group that are interested in both and show that the two are connected. Uh, and, and that's true in the Exxon case around climate risk. In some of my work, it's also about human rights or labor practices or living wage. The, the same sort of issues and the same connection uh, loom large in a lot of the debates we have around stakeholder capitalism. So outside of just making the recognition, using the ExxonMobil case 
uh, here right now, outside of the recognition of the impact of uh, of climate change on the on the balance sheet for Exxon Mobil, what else does a company thinking more larger scope? What else does a company need to do to try and re-engage with stakeholders and kind of rebuild that relationship with them? I think they need to understand where they're creating benefits and harm for stakeholders. So companies that are producing a lot of emissions are putting out a lot of carbon that has a social cost. They should figure out, you know, what that cost is and and what they can do to mitigate it. Uh, Other companies might be, you know, polluting the water, polluting the air. They might not be allowing their employees to have a living wage. They need to calculate those social consequences, those social costs, and try to remedy them in a way that still delivers shareholder value. Um, you know, if you uh, if you if you I mean, Exxon again is the example. If you don't address climate risk, at some point your oil reserves get written down to zero, and, and you don't have a valuation as a company. Um, if you're polluting the water, you might get hit with regulations. You might get hit with protests. Uh, you know, you might contaminate the water supply you're depending upon uh, for your company. They're going to be financial costs, but we don't always connect the dots. And so companies need to go through that process of seeing how the cons- the costs that they're creating could hit the balance sheet and then calculate the most cost-effective way to address those. I, I guess that, that we really are seeing kind of a recognition in and around climate change that there that that being able to address these issues in a proper fashion doesn't it, it's going to be a benefit it still can be a benefit to the bottom line uh, i think the the old perception was that uh if you changed away from the normal pattern of say a company like exxon mobil or shell or you know think of the oil company that it was going to significantly impact to the negative what the company's balance sheet would be but there are ways to work with within that so that you can still be a profitable company. Absolutely. And and you have to do it to be a profitable company. I mean, we're in the midst of a, a transition away from fossil fuels to alternative solar, wind, battery. And it's happening in a speed that is going to catch many investors off guard. Um, we're seeing this transition occurring. And it's not happening now, but 5, 10, 15 years from now, there's going to be a radical shift in, in energy supplies. And if you're left holding only fossil fuels or primarily fossil fuels, there's not much valuation in that. There's a terminal value which approaches zero uh, to your fossil fuel reserves at some point. And and, um, I think if you don't adapt, if you don't start exploring other opportunities, uh, your share price is going to suffer. And I think, you know, both the ExxonMobil case and also the, the legal case against Shell that was also in the same week are really highlighting the financial consequences of not doing more, not being more aggressive. Great to have you with us. Thanks very much for a few moments today. No, it's a pleasure. Thanks for the interest in the case. Thank you. Veed Hennish, who is a management professor at the Wharton School. To keep engaged with Wharton Business Daily and other Wharton School shows, visit businessradio.wharton.upenn.edu.